say to you how very proud I am of you. I'm always proud of you, but sometimes even more proud of you. When you come out on a day like this, I really loved up the first service because they came through the lightning and the rain. And, and, uh, but thank you for coming today, and thank you for being second prayers, most of you. You have, uh, we've been through a lot, and you have stayed with the Word. You've stayed with the gospel. You've stayed moving forward. You've stayed unified. And praise the Lord for His kingship over us all. And then help me to be even, even more proud as we inform the, those visiting with us what the whole book of Revelation is about. Just two words. It is Jesus wins. You can say that again more confidently. Jesus wins. And we especially celebrate that today in his victory over sin, death, and the devil. You're coming in these last, this last chapter, these last verses of Revelation 22 to a, a revisiting of those, those several commands that John gave to the seven churches in the first several chapters of the book. He said, for instance, you need to turn your back on falsehood. You need to do good deeds. You need to persevere. You love one another. And uh, to each of those, he, he gives what the Bible always does, and that is a grace reason to obey. Motivation and enablement. The motivation of grace, the enablement of Jesus Christ. And this one, this final exhortation is it's no less true. Jesus gives us everything that we need. And this is the greatest need we have. It is what every human being is looking for. It is what you are looking for today, even if you're not presently thinking about it. It is this ultimate need for which Jesus came, for which he died, and for which he rose again. We begin reading in verse 16 of Revelation 22 to find out what it is. <clears throat> I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the branch or the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things of the gospel from this, the last portion of your word, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> Vern Bingston grew up in a Bible-believing Christian home. Not only did he 
grow up hearing the gospel, hearing the truth of Scripture. He saw it lived out in his parents and his grandparents, all of his ten uh, uncles and aunts. He heard the gospel. He saw it acted out in his presence. He was very well loved, he says. But when he got to college and especially graduate school, he did what so many do, and that is he turned his back on the Christian faith. He earned his PhD in sociology. He landed a prestigious job at the University of Southern California. And by that time, he had turned his back and even to the point that he had, he had offended his mother, his dear loved and dearly loved mother. He must have had an argument with her, must have tried to convince her that Jesus was not who he said he was. He didn't rise from the dead because she said in a letter to him, I love you, Vern, but if it comes down to choosing between my son and Jesus, I will choose my dear Jesus. Soon after he started his career as a sociology professor at USC, he started uh, research for what would become the largest longitudinal study of its kind. He was asking the question, how is a faith, not just Christian faith, but how is a faith passed down from one generation to the next or not? What are the characteristics of, of those who uh, pass their faith on to their children, grandchildren? What do they do? What do they have in common? What are the characteristics of those uh, who don't pass it on? Eventually pa- studied 350 families over the course of nearly 40 years. He published that study in a book called Families and Faith. And he made several observations. I've shared them with you uh, on an occasion. And he said the key finding that he discovered was that uh, it, is, it is the faith as it is passed down through loving parents and grandparents. Parents and grandparents who not only talk about the gospel or their respective faith, but live it out and convey love with it. And then he said this in an interview later in the New York Times. He said, I also noticed, don't give up on the prodigals. Don't give up on the prodigals. And then he, then he talked about his own experience. He said that he turned his back on the faith of his parents and his grandparents, Bible-believing Christian faith. Well, one day, one Sunday morning, he decided he... He wanted to check out that beautiful Gothic church at the end of his street. So he walked to church. And it was Easter Sunday of all days. When he stepped in the back, he said, I I heard the people singing at the top of their lungs. the, The organ was rattling the rafters and the light was sifting down through the stained glass windows. And I came back. I came back to the faith, and I have never quit coming. I sing in the choir. I have never quit coming back to Christ, and it's even made me a better scholar. He was 67 years old at the time. He's now in his 70s. What is it about Jesus 
that uh, someone who has rejected him, turned his back on him for some 40 years, that when he comes back, he comes alive, that it makes everything in his life better, including his scholarship. What is it about Jesus that can have that impact? It is this, he's alive. He is alive, not in a metaphorical sense, not just in that that wishy-washy sense of he makes us think of spring and things coming alive. He is alive. He's physically alive. He's standing at the right hand of the Father. And he came alive in order to give life. Some of you don't feel very alive today. Some of us don't feel very alive. You feel like your hope is dead. Your emotions are dead. You're disappointed. You have no energy, no spiritual inspiration, no emotional zip, (laughs) no desire to live into the future. Estranged from God, estranged from others, you feel dead. And Jesus says to you today, I came to life to give you life whether it's for the first time ever, whether it's for the thousandth time as a Christian, I am alive to give you life. Because this is Jesus speaking, he gives us two commands that we must not forsake. He says, come to me. And then he says, say to me, come. Just those two simple points in this passage. Say to Jesus, or Jesus says to you, through his church, come to me. Look at it in verses 16 to 19. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you. Now we know that the whole Bible is the word of God. We know that Jesus is the message of the whole Bible. But here he says something very interesting. You know, we, we talk at times about the various genre of literature that make up the Bible. That is different kinds of writings are historical writings and they're didactic or writings that are teaching. There are apocalyptic writings, that is, writings that announce the future, tell us things that are going to happen in the future, Daniel and Ezekiel. And we often, and not incorrectly, put, put Revelation into that category as well. However, there's another genre in Scripture called the epistles. That just means letter. Paul wrote letters, Peter wrote letters, John wrote letters, and there's several things that characterize those letters. One of them is each one ends with a benediction. May grace, mercy, and peace be to you, amen, and so forth. Well, this apocalyptic letter ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, amen. The whole Bible ends with that word of grace. The whole Bible ends with that benediction. This is a letter, a letter from Jesus. Jesus is writing this letter, not just to these churches, not just to John, but Jesus has written a letter to you today. He has sent you this mail that says, I, Jesus, am writing this to you, signed Jesus. And what does he say? He says, come. Come to me for life. 
You want, you need, you desperately long for life. Not just existence, but to live, really live. And Jesus offers it. He says, the spirit and the bride, verse 17, say, come. Come to what? Come to me as the source, the root of everything. You see back up in verse 17, uh, 16, I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the beginning and the source of life that David prophesied. And what did the, the prophet say that this root and branch of David would bring? Ezekiel said he would be a tender shepherd. Uh, Jeremiah said he'll be a righteous branch. He'll be a sprout from David's line. And he alone will do justice and righteousness. And Zechariah says this root and branch of David will make even the feeblest strong. Do you want to live? Do you need strength? Do you need tenderness and peace? Do you need to know that there is someone with authority, absolute authority, who is just and righteous? Then Jesus says, come to me. The Spirit says, come to Jesus. We know who the Spirit is. We confess to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going back to the Father. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to send the Spirit. He's going to remind you of everything that I've taught you. He's going to be the comforter. He's going to seal to your hearts and minds everything that you need. He's going to bring the Word of God to you that will enable you to, to a life of godliness and peace. It's that spirit that runs that foot race between earth and heaven, taking from Jesus everything that he has and bringing it to us. But why does he add the bride? It's not just the spirit, but the bride say, come. Because he doesn't just announce it in an a nebulous, ethereal way that the spirit out there is bringing this to you. He incarnates it in the church. He says the church will announce to you, come to Jesus and you'll find life. He appointed me to announce that to you today. He appointed the choir to sing it to you today. He appointed all of these, these Christians here to sing it over you today. He causes the church to be dispersed from here and to announce it to the world. He brings this hope and comfort, the promise of life, through real people, through the ministries of the church. The preaching, the worship, the fellowship, the sacraments, the spirit and the bride say, come. But in verses 18 and 19, there is this sobering word. I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy, yes, come, but what are you coming to? You're coming to the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, if Immediately, he's referring to this book that he's written, but as we've studied the book of Revelation, we've noticed that it summarizes the whole Bible. So by extension, he's saying, these, these words that I've spoken to you, this is, the, this is the message of the whole book, the whole Bible. And if anybody adds to it, plagues will be added to him. If anyone takes away from it, he will not find access to the tree of life. He's not 
saying something, some kind of, it's not describing some kind of spooky incantation. He is saying, here, here's the simple thing that he's saying. This whole book announces the good news of Jesus Christ. That if you receive him, the death that he died on the cross, believe that God raised him from the dead, then he will join you to his life. And because he was raised from the dead, you will be raised too. You will have eternal life. That's the promise. And if you try to add to that, you try to supplement that, and it's not going to work. You try to take away from that, it's not going to work. So Jesus, when he promises to bring us life, promises to bring us life through the word of God. When he says, come to me, he says, come to me as I am related to you in scripture. Come to me and live as I command you in scripture. Come to me and find life by what I prescribe in scripture. Scripture is not always easy to swallow. The reason we tend to add to the Bible, the reason we try to take away from the Bible is we want to make it more comfortable. I don't like what it says to me. I don't like the sins it points out in me. I don't like that it offends my sensibilities by telling me that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of salvation by grace. I don't like the prejudices that it exposes in me. I don't like the practices that it tells me I must stop. I don't like the practices it tells me I must add. But you know, Jesus is the great physician who administers healing to us that is not always pleasant. He has to sometimes break bones to reset them. He is one who has to cut in order to heal. He's the one who gives us bitter medicine in order to make us better. So coming to Jesus is to come to him as he is described and prescribed in his word, no matter what. A few years ago, I read about the great hero of medicine, Jay Freireich, in Baltimore, who decided he was going to take on leukemia, a sure death sentence and thought to be incurable. And after watching several children bleed to death, he thought, I can't handle this anymore. And he decided to take on the entire medical profession and, and, and swim against the current. And he came up with strange concoctions and practices that nearly got him kicked out of medicine. People were organizing to remove his medical degree, to ban him from the hospital. And then one day a child quit hemorrhaging. And then another and another who quit bleeding they sent them home. He was a hero all of a sudden. We're, we, we got you wrong. Now we understand. But then lying in bed one night, he realized, I didn't heal that child. I just stopped the bleeding. Healing that child, he said in his memoirs, means I must savagely and repeatedly take them to the brink of death until the cancer is killed. So he called those parents and asked them to trust him enough to bring their child back. Children they saw playing in the front yards happily for the first time ever. And he said, I need you to bring them back. I've got to make them sick in order to make them better. 
Those parents who trusted him came back again and again while he took an 18-gauge needle and plunged it into the shin bone without anesthesia to test the blood and blasting it with strong chemicals until the cancer was killed, put into remission. Without that courageous, that courageous act of one living soul taking life to another even though it was so unpleasant, those children would not have lived. We would not have had St. Jude. And Jesus confronts us again and again with the truth about who we are, not because He wants to ruin our joy or ruin our fun, but because He wants us to live and to really live. And when you come to Jesus and ask Him to give you His righteousness for your record and also His Spirit to cause you to come to life, though it will take you on a narrow road, though it will involve suffering, though it will offend your sensibilities and lose friends, it will be the road to abundant life, Jesus promises. And when you are convinced that that is truly living, you will become a proponent, an ambassador of the same. And by your words and by your actions, you'll keep the rest of this passage, which is to say to Jesus, come, come back. You notice in verses 20 and 21, he who testifies to these things, surely I'm coming soon, amen. And then he tells us what to say, come, Lord Jesus. Now the Bible tells us that we are to cry out, Jesus, come. By faith, to look into the future and see that morning star, that, that star like the, 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 the first light of the dawn, Venus in the eastern sky, to, to look far off in the distance, past the news stories, past the catastrophes, past our disappointments, and see that slight glimmer, that promise, and say, come quickly, Become brighter. Show yourself. Come back, Lord Jesus. And then the Bible tells us there are a couple of ways that we can hasten His coming. One is by spreading the gospel, by leading other people to Christ. Jesus said, I, all authority has been given to me. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And elsewhere He says, and when? The gospel has been preached to the last creature on the earth. Then I will come. One way to hasten his coming is to do evangelism. The way to hasten his coming is to spread the gospel. It is to share the gospel. It is to invite people to come. It is to compel them to come. Instead of wringing your hands over the endless news that makes its money by making you upset, Instead of wringing the, your hands over that, tell somebody about Jesus. Instead of complaining about politicians, tell somebody about Jesus and hasten Jesus coming back. You want things to get better? You're not going to make them better by complaining. You're not going to make them better by getting something new politically. It's not to, not to run away from the culture. But the way to hasten Jesus coming back is to lead other people to Christ. All that time we spend 
haranguing and complaining and worrying and wringing our hands, we could have used that time to share the good news with somebody else. So we're organizing ourselves to do that. We're organizing ourselves to take the gospel to every doorstep in our city. Not only gathering ourselves together through parishes, but organizing in order to take Christ to the doorstep of every household. That Jesus might come back. There's another way the Bible says that we can hasten the day of Jesus' return. Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, he said, in view of all these things that we've been talking about this morning, in view of all of these things, let us lead, lead holy and righteous lives that we may hasten his return. One author says uh, that kind of focus is called faithful present, being, being, being faithful in the present in our presence, Where, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, being faithful there. You're not just sharing the gospel to our neighbor and doing evangelism, but in whatever we're doing, programming a computer, teaching, a, teaching children, <laughs> cleaning up after a child, mowing your lawn, practicing medicine. You're a butcher, a baker, candlestick maker, doesn't matter what you're doing. If doing that in the name of Jesus, and somehow, we don't understand this exactly, but somehow the Bible gives us this idea that Jesus gathers up all of those little acts of faithfulness and he, 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 he melds them into artillery that advances his kingdom against the gates of hell. Sort of like happened in World War II when people rationed things, when they turned in their forks and spoons and when they, when they didn't consume as much gasoline and so forth. And, the, and we gathered all those things and we melted them down and we harnessed them and we transformed them into power, a powerful weaponry that advanced the cause of peace. Jesus gathers up all of these acts of faithfulness and advances the kingdom. He gives us the privilege of hastening his return. How can he do that? Because he's alive. Because he's alive, he makes you alive. And when you're alive, really living, you advance life and you advance his coming. What's John been teaching us this whole book? Recently, one of my children, who shall remain nameless as Caroline, my youngest, you're going to find out anyway, so I may as well tell you. Recently, just a few weeks ago, she was on two-lane roads in South Carolina making her way to meet us. And, and uh, she went by a car that was on the side of the stall and a woman was slumped over the steering wheel. She went down a, a little way and then turned around and came back to check on this person. Now, I know what you're thinking is what I did. I said, I'm so proud of you, but don't ever do that again. <laughs> By herself, somebody else joined her soon, and they looked in the window, they called 911, and uh, the operator said, do you see any signs of life? Is, is she moving back and forth as if she's breathing? 
uh, no, there's no sign. Then you've got to open the door, check for a pulse, check for a pulse, uh, no pulse. Then you've got to start CPR. You don't even have time to get her out of the car. Just recline the seat, uh, throw her back, and start doing CPR. Take the keys out of the ignition. They took the keys out of the ignition, they, and, and Caroline jumped up on the seat and started chest compressions. She was equipped to do this by hours and hours of training in watching Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> She's the only one in our family who's forgotten to do a lot of things with our fourth child. Well, among them is teaching her CPR. And so she's the only one who's never had CPR, but the only person who's ever saved somebody's life with CPR. She starts the compressions. In the, in the meantime, the, the, the conversation breaks down on the phone because the woman who's on the line talking to the 911 operator thinks that she's unnecessarily profiling because she's asked for age and she's asked for gender, she asked for race, and, and uh, she's shouting at her, that's not appropriate to ask. This woman needs to know, give me the phone. Caroline said, just give me the phone, let me talk to her. And she keeps on the compressions. Somebody else drives up and said, you know, I'm a firefighter paramedic. I know how to do CPR, but he did nothing, put his hands in his pocket. Somebody else came up and said, I know, I'm, a, I'm a, a medical professional. He took one look at her and he said, may as well quit, she's dead. Caroline just kept on pounding. Finally, the woman sputtered. At that time, a nurse came and took over with more violent compressions as was appropriate and, and then yelling, come on, stay with me. Come on, she's pounding her chest. Don't die on me. Come alive. Don't give up. We're here. We're for you. Stay with me. And the woman sputtered and choked and breathed and sat up. She lived. She wouldn't have lived without that painful process. She wouldn't come, have come to life if somebody had quit. And Jesus, from the beginning of this book, has been pounding on the heart, on the chest of the church. Come alive. Come out of your materialism. Come out of your lackadaisical spirit. Come out of your sexual immorality or your, your injustice. Come out of your despair. Come out of your hopelessness. Come out of your fear. Come out of your anxiety. Come out of everything that is killing you and keeping you dead. Come alive. Jesus has not finished pounding on this church, on our church. And today he's pounding on your chest, saying, I'm not giving up on you. Come alive. The only thing preventing you is your desire. But when you come to Jesus, your longings will be satisfied. Everything your heart is aching for will be filled now into eternity. Jesus says, come alive. And we say to him, 
come right now and come quickly. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for not giving up on us individually, not giving up on us as a church. Thank you, Lord, for coming, living, dying, rising again. And now we say, come again and come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.